In the space between their visit to the mortal realms and their wait for an invitation to the summer court, Farrah joins the inner circle for her first night on the town in Valaris. She finds that there are many aspects of the city of Starlight to enjoy, bringing with it some new revelations. Farrah begins her mental and physical training with Resand and Cassian, and in the process admits to herself the things she's been too afraid to say out loud for far too long. The views expressed by the hosts are entirely their own and in no way represent the thoughts or intentions of the original author. This podcast is a discussion shared to spark thought and conversation on the characters and themes of this novel. Though the hosts speak mostly within the constraints of this book, series spoilers may be discussed with or without warning. Explicit language, as well as themes of sex, violence, abuse, self-harm, and depression will reoccur throughout this podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Book Talk for Book Talk, a podcast where we deep dive into the writing of your favorite novels. This season, we're exploring Sarah J. Mass's most beloved novel in the Court of Thorns and Roses series. This is Jack. And I'm Amy. This week, we're discussing chapters 29 through 31 in A Court of Mist and Fury. This week, we ask ourselves, can Farrah truly begin the healing process when she leaves so much unsaid? Themes we see in these chapters include turning points and what is unsaid. Chapter 29 opens with Feyre and the inner circle venturing into Valaris to have dinner as a group. This is the first time Feyre has willingly gone out with the group with the intent to enjoy herself. Additionally, this is the first time in this book, or really since Summer Solstice in Book 1, that Feyre has sought out joy. For the first time, Feyre is on even footing with those surrounding her, not just with the inner circle, but with the people of the city. Feyre notes that shoppers and performers were made up of high fey and lesser fey. There's no divide here between beings. In the human world and in the spring court and even after being made, Farrah hasn't fit in anywhere, and now she's walking the streets slowly changing her perception of the world. Her changing perception of herself and her life is reflected in the river. Quote, The water of the river was so smooth that the stars and lights blended on its dark surface like a living ribbon of eternity. This is the first time eternity or immortality has been described in a beautiful way and not as a black hole or some other negative. We see here Feyre's beginning ability to see beauty in the world around her once more. And what does this mean? Hope. Feyre once again has hope. Also note that Feyre's finding hope after walking by the Palace of Threads and Jewels. The link to jewelry and her healing is coming across here. Now, Amy, I want to pause this conversation and absolutely derail it and read you something that has annoyed me from day one to day now. Okay. I love when we get annoyed. I <laughs> I don't know if anybody else does. But no I one do. else is happy with us. <laughs> okay. So this is when the night court's walking around and quote in chapter 29, the conversation ranged from the people they knew, matches and sports teams I never heard about. Apparently, Amarin was a vicious, obsessive supporter of one. New shops, music they heard, clubs they favored. All right. We've been in a high fantasy world. Mm-hmm. We've been in a world where fair is living in the woods. We've lived in a world where, you know, we have traditional manners. And now there's sports teams mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Amron's a fan of mm-hmm. that we never hear of again. So it always bothered me until I read Hosab. Spoiler. I think it's Sunball. I don't care what it. I mean, no, no, I, it doesn't fit. But no, it just it, it doesn't, doesn't fit. fit. Like it, I mean, it could be Sunball, but even if it was, 
Like, we never talk about it again. Are you saying that this is the only court that has sports and sports teams? Like, it's just far too developed to be in this world. I agree. To me, what this comes across as an attempt at world building without putting in the actual work. Yeah, because are there celebrities then? Right. Of these teams? Like, how many teams? Is it all within Volaris? Right. So how many people are in Volaris for there to be sports teams like that? Is it professional or is it just anyone gathered around? Or is it like college intramural sports or something? Are there even colleges there? Are there schools? Mm. What's the education system? If the rest of the night court doesn't know about Volaris, then... How is there a sports team? Like, does the rest of the night court get to play with them? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's Also, ex- does that mean... Sorry, last one. Does that mean if you're born in Volaris and you want to move, you can't because that means you're like, ha- you have a secret that you can't take right. with you. Like, once you're in, you're in. Well, it sounds like people don't want to leave. Because a sports team... I don't know. It just, it's like... <laughs> What about like the one person, one fae falls in love with the fae from a different world and then they're just in two separate worlds and they'll never be able to bring them home to meet mom and dad because mom and dad's in Valaris and that's a secret city. It sounds like a tragedy. It's world building without. It's world building without world building. That's why when I'm building my own world, I come to you and our writers group and I just say, okay, guys, ask me the questions, even if I'm not including it in the world. Ask me the question so I know what I'm answering, like what's happening. Right. And it's trying to give Amarin character because we all know that person in our life, right? In that moment, Amarin is a trope. Yeah. And it makes Amarin a trope. It gives us a visual without giving us a visual. And it's a little lazy. It is. And it's just funny because you don't need to add that for Amarin. Amarin is an especially well-developed character. Yeah. And that was probably the least needed thing for her. Honestly, she probably could have saved it for more. Yeah. And that would double her development. (laughs) So sad. Why are we so mean? Getting back onto the theme of hope. Feyre's hope is expanded upon as the group travels to their dinner location when Feyre observes Reese's interactions with his citizens. She notices that, quote, no one, absolutely no one on the street balked or paled or ran. Unlike the rest of Prithian, the citizens of Valaris do not look at Reese with fear, but with awe, perhaps a little intimidated. Favor also observes that, quote, the sounds of it all might have been the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard, a signal to us as readers that Favor is allowing her senses to open up and that she is returning more to herself and the girl we knew in Thorns and Roses. It's in this moment of observation that Favor has her own self-awareness. She realizes that, In her past, she raged against and resented the normalcy of Phalaris because she was broken to save the world and could no longer be normal. Yet now she sees Phalaris and recognizes that, quote, there was no place like this in the world, not so serene, so loved by its people and its rulers. In this chapter, we get a lot of hidden Tamlin content, and we're going to have to dissect the text in order to really see that. Really, Farah is doing a lot of comparing and contrasting here. And I'm going to go back to that quote that Amy just read. It's quote, but there was no place like this in the world, not so serene, so loved by its people and its ruler. We have to remember that Farah has been to four places total in her lifetime. She's been to the human world, the spring court, under the mountain, and now here. She really doesn't have a lot to compare Valaris to. Obviously, Farah is not talking about under the mountain because she clearly had a very horrible experience there, as well as the human world. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows for her there. So what we can see is that Farah is referencing the spring court and comparing the night court to the spring court. Quote, not so serene. 
This is a direct blow to the girl who Farah used to be. If anything, the spring court should be considered serene since it has its constant nice weather and the landscape and how beautiful it's supposed to be. It's how Farah used to feel, and now she's moved past that. There's no safety for her in the spring court. That's such an interesting change, because if we think back to Thorns and Roses, Farah eventually learns to be grateful for the constant weather in the spring court because it's Mm -hmm. so lovely, and she has just come from like this harsh winter in the human realm. And now she's here in Valaris, and she's seeing that stagnation of the spring court with that negative connotation. And it's cold here, but it's not like the human cold. She's able to accept and embrace changing seasons. And I would say, by extension, she now has an appreciation for change that maybe she didn't have before. Oh, for sure. Serene no longer means one thing. Serene can encompass a lot more. Yeah. Just like the spring court or the night court. Then we have the next part of the quote. So loved by its people and its ruler. Farah is continuing to compare Reese and Tamlin directly without comparing them directly. Farah is calling out that not only did the Fae of the Spring Court not love their lands, as we can tell from the beginning of the book and how they had to rebuild, but it's becoming more obvious to Farah that Tamlin didn't love his lands, not the way that Reese does. Farah and Tamlin bonded over having to take up responsibility that shouldn't have been theirs, Farah feeding her family and Tamlin becoming High Lord. The difference is love. Farah loves her sisters while Tamlin never learned to love his lands. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Right? Everything about this night out is opposite to Tamlin, from the way the inner circle interacts with one another to the way Reese is with the restaurant owner. The setting and the people are significantly more casual. Even the people themselves are and their customs are way more casual. We didn't talk about this in the notes of the episode, but you know how Sarah J. Mass is guilty of the I could have sworn? Mm-hmm. So that there's always something there where, you know, every time Farah says, I could have sworn, it's like you can guarantee that that's going to become a thing. 100. I caught one. And I'm wondering if it means more than I think it is, but I think we can figure it out. Quote, the lifeblood of Alaris thrummed through me and in rare mom- moments of quiet, I could have sworn I heard the clash of the sea clawing at the distant cliffs. I thought about that, too. Is it hinting to the summer court in the water? Or is it foreshadowing the eventual Highburn breaking in through yeah. the wards? Yeah. I had that same thought when I reread it in preparation for this episode, and I couldn't figure it out. And Sarah J. Mass doesn't throw that around. I mean, she throws it around, but intentionally, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she throws it around very intentionally. But, I mean, it was just one of those that I caught. I mean, I guess it could be a breadcrumb to two different moments, whether it's the Spring Court or the Highburn attack. but Or it could be something we don't know yet. Exactly. There's a lot in this chapter where Sarah's throw some things around. I'm like, are you are you going to bring this back in like a future book? Yeah, agreed. We then get to the restaurant scene in Valaris, and we see an interesting use of food as power in this scene. Reese pays for his inner circle to eat food that Feyre thinks of as, quote, warm and rich and savory and spicy, like it filled not only my stomach, but that lingering hole in my chest, too. As we've seen in earlier chapters, Reese is sharing his power with those closest to him. And in this instance, it is helping Feyre heal. By empowering Feyre, as we will see in coming chapters, Reese is helping Feyre heal, not by keeping secrets, but by giving her chances to be powerful and to contribute to the cause. By healing, Feyre is finally ready to claim her power. Feyre thinks that the food is, quote, warm, rich, and savory and spicy. Can we 100% agree that not a single bit of food in the spring court was spicy? Oh, absolutely. It was probably very citrusy. 
oh, and flowery. I, I didn't think citrusy. I was thinking like their most intense spice is salt. Yeah, exactly. And pepper. Yeah, salt and pepper. But I feel like it's one of those places that would like all the f- desserts are fruit flavored. Strawberry. A lot of strawberry. Or lemon. But, you know, when Reese was in the summer court, oh, yeah, the there was a sense of strawberry. So that can't be a, stri- a spring court. So meal. it has to be whatever fruit are ripe in spring? Oh, we don't know that answer. I don't know that Not answer. at all. Lots avocados. of apples. <laughs> apples and avocados. <laughs> We're farmers. <laughs> we are. We've been pointing out that food is power since early season one. And in season two, we've called out those instances as well. I feel like in book two, Farah is much more aware of food as power than she was in book one. In book one, food was obviously power, but Farah didn't know it could be weaponized. And just as it can be weaponized, food can also be healing, as we're seeing here and as Farah sees. Again, we really should remind ourselves that Farah has struggled with food insecurities for the majority of her life. Since now, the only other time Ferris felt comfortable eating were those few months in between learning to trust Tamlin and going under the mountain. Finally, Farah is getting back on even footing with food. I have a question in response to this thought. When did Farah gain this awareness? In the night court or in the spring court? Because there's two moments. Both. And what, and what awareness? Like that it's healing or... When do you think Feyre realized food could be weaponized? And is this the moment she recognizes it also has another purpose? I think she realized that food can be weaponized while under the mountain because Amarantha used it against her. Mm-hmm. And I think she learned how to weaponize it when she got out of the mountain and used it to weaponize herself. Ah, uh, yeah, I like that because she definitely used it as a weapon. Against herself. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it was definitely self-sabotage. Yeah. And then I think this is the first time that food has ever been healing. Because mm-hmm. when she was in the spring court, food was more a survival and then learning that it doesn't have to be an insecurity thing, that it can exist in your world as a normal. It can be a staple. Yeah. I don't think that food has ever really been healing for her until now. Yes, I agree with that point. I don't know if this is any added value, but it's crazy when you actually think about how little Farah's actually eaten comfortably in her lifetime. Like maybe all of four months? If that, Yeah. At least after the age of eight, right? After the age of eight, yeah. We're going to like look past that. So in her non-adolescent life, it's, yeah, four months, if that, because she's only really starting to eat now with the night court. And she was only super secure with Tamlin, what, maybe two months? If even. It's actually really tragic when you think about it. Like, just imagine only in your lifetime having four months of feeling secure with food. I can't imagine. I have a foster nephew who has suffered from food insecurity, and it's amazing the trauma that that inflicts on an individual. Absolutely. So it is very tragic that as a 20-year-old, she's maybe had four months of food security in the last decade. We really forget the amount of trauma Farah's had. Yes. yes. Even just like in something like this. Mm-hmm. We also see at the restaurant where the theme of food is power and the theme of wakefulness intersect. Feyre tells the restaurant owner that, quote, I've never had food like this, food that makes me feel awake. So far in Mist and Fury, Feyre sleeps when she should be awake, and she wakes up when she should be sleeping. Finally, her system is being reset, thanks to recent events and the change of her mindset. We see the solidification of her determination to be fully present in this moment. Amy, have you ever had food that made you feel awake? All my good food makes me want to sleep. Yeah, I know. Food coma, right? I think the only thing I could equate to this is maybe wasabi. I'm not even joking. That's exactly what I was thinking. Oh, really? 
it, it's not unironic that we just ate wasabi too. I just wish we had done that on a one, two, three because <laughs> it was wasabi. It would have been the perfect. right answer. Yes, wasabi is the only answer. It's a, I can't. Yeah. It is in the same moment that Feyre realizes she used to be happy and fulfilled after painting and that her desires revolved around painting where they don't anymore. We see this beautiful change where painting no longer scares Feyre anymore and it doesn't scare her to open up her senses. This chapter proves that her senses are awake and aware. This is a major turning point for Feyre. From now on, Feyre will begin to imagine paintings in her mind. This is one more step toward claiming Feyre's happiness and purpose in immortality. I also want to highlight this moment, too. This is another instance where Feyre is referencing Tamlin without referencing him. Feyre realizes that she used to feel fulfilled after painting from morning until night. But what she's not saying is that the only time she ever got to experience that was in the spring court because her needs were met there and she felt safe with Tamlin. There's some denial happening here by not elaborating on the narrative, which is why she shifts the conversation to the chef and praises them, saying that it was better than any other courts. Again, she's comparing them to the spring court. But I really want to take a moment to discuss how much she's not saying. So we've seen Sarah J. Mass use this narrative technique before. In our earlier episodes, we talked a lot about Feyre being an unreliable narrator. It's because she's willingly leaving out certain details or certain thought processes, right? Mm -hmm. We saw this when she briefly casually mentions that Tamlin doesn't come to her bedroom one night. Yep. And then we briefly get it again in the chapter 54 or something. There's a lot more to be said that she's not saying. And I feel like in other instances, we miss it. But doing this analyzing, you know, the literary analysis right now, I feel like her silence is screaming at us. Absolutely. There is so much subtext that is doing what we're doing, which is comparing Tamlin and Resand. Yeah. I mean, how can you, how can you, you, Amy, no, how can Farah really reflect on her time at the Spring Court without thinking about it, but just thinking about like, oh, I used to feel like I did something with my day by painting all day. And yet she somehow manages to isolate that experience from the whole of being with Tamlin and feeling safe there at that time. Is it realistic? I don't know. I don't know if that's like a realistic character thing. Can you compartmentalize like that? I think, and I think this kind of gets to our question that we're going to discuss later at the end of the episode, but I think you can compartmentalize, but I don't think you can really truly process. Yeah, that goes into our answers for later. But I <laughs> I mean, I understand that better right now, where being able to look back at a time and be able to pick and choose the things that you liked about a relationship, choose the things that you liked about yourself without having to have it all wrapped up into one. Right. Because it's too painful to process right now. Yeah. As we see later in these chapters when Feyre has that painful processing moment. For sure. Painful for her, painful for Cassian. Painful for both. <laughs> when the restaurant owner gives Amran a pint of blood and Amran expresses shock, the owner tells her, quote, no one leaves my place hungry. I think this perfectly encapsulates Valaris. All are welcome and fed here, taken care of and healed. Look at each member of the inner circle. Why do they protect Valaris so fiercely? It's because each of them has had a personal struggle that brought them to Valaris, where they finally felt safe and whole. The same can be said of Feyre. I think this explains why she fights tooth and nail in the battle for Valaris against Hybern soldiers later in the novel. Because the food is that good. Because the food is so good. I feel that way about Paris. I would protect 
that groton stand with my life with my life with other people's lives i would just everybody everyone's life. lives everyone goes <laughs> for that except the chef except for the chef but you know amy the city has also struggled as well as the restaurant owner says they didn't have spices this reminds me of how pharaoh mocked the people of volaris when she first came to volaris I mean, did you cringe a little bit to that, too? Of course I did. It was just so, like, we're so sad that, you know, I like having spices again. Like, oh, boo freaking who? You didn't get to use more than salt or pepper. Suck it up. Yes. I I, I totally agree with you. And I'm I'm trying to be like, everyone has their own struggles. No, Amy, no. (laughs) I mean, that speaks to how well taken care of the effort Reese, well, Reese wasn't there. Well, I mean, I bet everyone in the city had very healthy sodium levels. Because they had a lot of salt? Because they didn't have spice to, like, season everything. Fair. Their biggest struggle is that everyone had healthy sodium levels. As as a... I don't know what to say to that. They didn't have gout. Good for them. <laughs> Scurvy was handled. <laughs> now a word from this episode sponsor. Amy. Yeah. You know how I'm super single? You're very single. You did not need to confirm that hard. But... It's cool because now I get to have a meat cute box. Well, guess what? I'm in a relationship and I get to have a meat cute box. I don't. How did that happen? I don't know. But what I do know is meat cute box is a themed date night box filled with unique items from small businesses around the world. So I get to have a self date night by myself and not have to share anything with this amazing monthly subscription box. That's correct. And I get to have a great date night without doing any of the planning. Wait a minute. That's actually a really great... That's a life hack right there. That is a life hack. Every box is handmade based on your membership profile. So you as a solo person or you and your partner have a new surprise each month. Memberships start at only $29.99 a month with each box valued up to $100. And honestly... That is a great price because I pay way more in sushi for just myself. There's even gift boxes available if you want to send one to a friend. Aw, Amy, is that you saying you're going to send me one? No, because you can use the code podcast at meetcutebox.com to get $10 off your first box. That did not go the way that I was anticipating it. I feel like you can still buy me one. I feel like I'm in a relationship. My money is going elsewhere. Touche. I will be getting my own using the promo code podcast and going to meetcutebox.com. Remember when Feyre first came to Valaris and how it was constantly compared to jewelry? We see something similar again in this chapter. The rainbow of Valaris is described by Feyre as, quote, a fistful of jewels, as if the paint they used on their houses came alive in the moonlight. Now, there is so much to unpack here, and I get goosebumps every time I think about it. Don't know why, but I do. First off, Feyre's perception of her life and those around her is changing. Her attitude towards jewelry is changing, too. And so to view the rainbow of Valoris as jewels is no longer necessarily a negative thing. At the same time, Amy, the description is a fistful of jewels. This can imply a lot more as well. Fists are used for violence or for capturing and hoarding. And while Farrah is changing her views on jewels, it still has a violence about it. The same can be said about Tamlin still. You're not wrong. But I'm not right, apparently. No, 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 no. I'm I'm just processing. You're not wrong. Valaris is being hoarded by the inner circle. The same way Tamlin hoarded Farah to himself. It's the way that the description, fistful of jewels, it's a very violent description. 
I'm not. I'm not disagreeing. No, I know, but I'm having like (laughs) agree with me more. (laughs) It's it's just very violent, right? Like it's a fist. It's a you know it's used for weapons, but it's also hoarding and it's very aggressive and it's greedy and it's greedy. Yes, I agree with you. I don't know how I feel about it, but I don't think Pharaoh sees it as a bad thing right now. No, no, and I think my main commentary on this is more of she's growing. Mm-hmm. She's learning to accept it. But even with her description of jewels, as we're, you know, we're understanding that her association with jewelry has a lot to do with her own healing. Mm-hmm. And as that happens, like you can see that there's still healing to be done because yes. jewels are still violent. They're still hoarding. It's still like Tamlin. Right. It's not something she abhors and discards or throws away or gives away. She's still capable of recognizing it for what it is. And there's still some uncertainty about how to approach it. Yeah, I agree. Good. <laughs> it's all it's all you wanted to it's hear. It's all I wanted. <laughs> Going back to the original quote, let's also unpack the idea that the Rainbow of Lars is home to artists, individuals Feyre identifies with for their love of their craft. This area comes alive in the moonlight. What is represented by moonlight? Resand. We can see here representation then that Feyre is coming alive thanks to Resand. And then, as if it were the cherry on top, we learn that this view is Reese and Reese's sister's favorite view. And I don't think that's coincidence at all. I mean, it also sounds like a beautiful view. So I feel like it's literally every person's favorite view. Also true. But nobody tells her that. Only Reese. No, but no one's like walked with her there. It's almost as if he was like, walk. let's go back to Paris. This view is my favorite view. And it's the Eiffel Tower. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, no one's walked with her yet. I feel attacked. No, this is I'm attacking Reese. <laughs> I'm attacking Reese where it's like, this was also my sister's favorite view. Oh, you mean the shiny, beautiful city? I wonder why. Yeah, that's fair. But I agree. It's done on purpose. 100 percent. Right. Right. SJM chose to portray it this way. Oh, and yeah, I'm blaming Reese. I'm like, my sister also liked to eat food. <laughs> oh, my God. You guys are the same. I love you. <laughs> Creepy. <laughs> Weird. While observing the Rainbow of Laris, Farah and Reese have a conversation about rearranging the city to put the rainbow closer to his home. Reese expresses shock at Farah's suggestion that he would do so. This moment shows a stark difference between what Farah understands of High Lords thanks to Talon versus Reese's true character. His reaction, I feel like if I was Farah, I'd just be like, all right, chill. It was a joke. (laughs) Obviously, I'm not telling you to rearrange the city. Why would I want to change anything about it? Like, Calm your tits. Yeah, I was being sarcastic. I was being sarcastic, man. Calm yourself. But, well, let's continue. This moment leads to Farah asking Resand, quote, Isn't that what high lords are supposed to do? Whatever they please. And when Reese gives her an honest yet cagey answer, which is so on brand for Reese, Farah immediately challenges him for another truth. Is he with Amran because he buys her jewelry? Honesty and truths are a currency, and yet somehow Farrah always comes back broke. And I think that's because we've witnessed from Resand that honesty is not necessarily equivalent to vulnerability. Yes. And that is why Farrah is broke, because what she's actually looking for is vulnerability. She's giving vulnerability. He doesn't. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Amy, that was great. 
The currency of knowledge continues and Reese shares why he's single and says that he's never felt tempted to invite someone to share a life with him. And the wording of that feels interesting to me. I don't know how I feel about that wording that I invite someone to live their life with him. Like, I, I don't know why that I don't want to say annoys me. I just don't know how I feel about that terminology. I have a couple of thoughts on this and I'm going to touch on these same thoughts, I think, later in the episode. This very much reminds me of Thorns and Roses when Tamlin tells Feyre that her human joy fascinates him and that he shouldn't be drawn to it, but he is. Mm -hmm. It's this idea of temptation that females are like Eve, they're seductresses, and Feyre in particular seduces them from their resolve to live stoic lives. Okay, okay. I think I see where you're going. And this invitation is a privilege that they're withholding, but Feyre's taking that resolve, that willpower from them. Yeah, there's something about like an invitation means something to give an offer. And you're right, like there is a certain withholding aspect to that. I get what SJM's trying to do because Reese is supposed to be the ultimate feminist, right? But there's still something grandiose about it. Yeah, like he would be privileged to join someone's life rather than someone being privileged to be invited into his life. Yeah, like thank you for inviting me to your ball. I feel like for me, if I wanted to rewrite it, it would say I've yet to find someone I want to spend the rest of my life with. Like, right. It's a very quick and easy thing to say. And yet the, the twist that he puts on it is somehow still demeaning. It is. It is because it's about control. Completely. And he has the control to invite. Exactly. Rather than seeking an actual partner to share. Exactly. It's about his ownership and it feels very unfeminist of him. It does. But the wording is meant to make him sound feminist. And I feel like it does the exact it opposite. It does the exact opposite. And it, again, it could have been an easy solve. Just I haven't found anyone that I want to share my life with. Which I think we're going to see. He's going to repeat this. Again. Yeah, he'll get better. What we're really seeing here is that he's being honest without being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. The honest answer is because I haven't found you, Farah. I'm in love with you. You're my maid. Take me now. But of course, he's not going to say that. So he's got a disguise on right now. Yeah, 100%. It's in moments like these that Farah still thinks of Ianthe, the example of the perfect female in her mind. And even though Farah knows the truth about Ianthe now and how she treated Resand, the fact that Farah still thinks of Ianthe in this moment shows slivers of insecurity for Farah. Side note. Farah asks about Cassian, Reese, and more, and, you know, that triangle. And Reese says, that's between them and Cassian. I'm not stupid or arrogant enough to get in the middle of it. I 100% lies. Lies. You're telling me in 500 years, he's never gotten in the middle of them, but he's willing to tell Asriel, spoiler for the secret chapter of Silver Flames, to back off from Elaine? Bullshit. 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 Or he hasn't, like, read one of their minds just to see what the hell's happening, you know? And- Bullshit like are accidentally heard something no and also they're your friends you get to be arrogant and stupid enough to ask like right right because you don't want them ruining the the dynamic. dynamic no you totally get to ask and i think that's a fair question to ask saying hey that's my cousin and those are my two best friends and we're all working together right can we not make this messy guys is there not an hr department that handles like office relations because there's an hr violation here somewhere there are many hr violations here 
I think Reese knows more than he lets on. Of course he knows. Of course he knows more. And I bet he knows more about more than she realizes. Yeah, but then the way to say that I'm not stupid or arrogant enough, again, he's really hyping himself up. Like, you can easily just say, look, it's really not my place to get involved and I don't feel comfortable talking about my friends behind their back. If that's something they want to share with you, great. Right. But I'm not there. Yep. That's their personal business. As long as it doesn't interfere with my court, yeah, that's for them to deal with. But by saying I'm not stupid or arrogant enough, he's implying that Farrah is. Yeah, it's true. It's a dig. (laughs) Right? This isn't the first time that Farrah mentions it. This isn't the last time Farrah mentions it. She keeps like coming back to it, as she should, because these are her co-workers and friends. Right. And it could be a liability. 100% a liability. This can't divide the inner circle. This is like her new workplace setting. Those dynamics are really important. It is. He plays himself up while shutting her down and making her feel stupid. Not a cool move. I mean, it shows. Again, this is a moment of honesty and yet not vulnerability. Exactly. Damn it, Reese. It makes me so mad. (laughs) On their way back to the townhouse, Farah and Reese encounter musicians who play the song that she heard in her prison cell under the mountain. It's here that Farah learns that Reese sent the music to her in her cell in Thorns and Roses because she was breaking. And it was the only way he could think to save her when no one else seemed to care. So I have a question for you, Jack. Is this a turning point in Farah and Reese's relationship? Before, it might have been just lust. But now is it or can it be more than just lost? I think what this does, it unlocks an acceptance and understanding for Farah that Reese was there for her under the mountain, which is something she wasn't willing to do because the second she accepts that Reese was there for her under the mountain, she then has to accept that Tamlin was not, which we get in just a few pages, right? Right. It is the turning point. But if anything, I think it's more of a turning point for her conclusion with Tamlin rather than her beginning with Resand. Mm. I think that's a fair point, given what we know of the next chapter. Yeah. So I have another question. I have many answers. I, You do. You have so many answers today. We also learned that Reese did not send the images Feyre saw in her prison cell that accompanied the music. So if Reese did not send them images of the night court to Feyre, did she invade his mind? But given the fact that she was still human, was it actually the mating bond? I don't know. (laughs) I think about this a lot. I feel like SJM is going to one day come back to this and that she's going to use it as a clue to something bigger later on. I don't know. I like is that just me? It just it feels like a like a nice big question mark because I think saying it's the mating bond is too easy. Yeah. Cause it's not they're not like clicked into placemates. Right. And it's not like all mates can do what they can do, right? Is right. go back and forth in each other's mind. They can only do that because Farah has some of his power. Right. So what was that then? Right. The, and that goes into SJM universe spoilers. Yeah. And I think that it's gonna be brought back. There's a lot in these chapters that SJM is going to come back to. I think so too. That evening, Farah and Reese start to flirt via paper and pen, aka sexting, but they cannot be honest with what they're feeling as always. And instead they're hiding behind their flirting. Moreover, the sexting references Farah going down on Reese Ann, when we all know he should be going down on her first. Granted, there's already been innuendos of Reese being on his knees for Farah, So I get it. Their sexual flirting already started with references of him going down on her. But this is different. This is sexting. There's something, I don't know, next level about it. And the fact that the dynamic twists in order for her to service him is a poignant one for me. 
So I see this as Reese testing the waters. He's seeing this change in Feyre. And previously, he tested the waters about being on his knees in front of her, and she reacted negatively, kind of, right? So maybe she'll like it more if I talk about her going down on me. Well, the first approach didn't work, so let's try a new approach. No, you continue that approach. I think he's testing boundaries. He's totally testing boundaries. And, as we saw, it's about control for him. He has to be in control. Yeah, no. I mean, it's true. Like, he's testing control and he's testing boundaries. So then, like, why not make a reference of, like, I don't know. He can enjoy other places of her. Very true. And that would be the more honest form of control. I would think that's what he really wants, right? I find this whole texting, sexting thing very frustrating, to it be is. honest. Or is he giving her control? Oh, now I'm working myself into loops. Oh. Is he giving her control of the situation? Back to what you yes. were saying. Yeah. You know, there's something about when you're servicing your partner <laughs> that you're in control, really. Right. And before she didn't like it because he was in control and now he's giving her the reins and she does accept it more because she was never really in control with Tamlin. He was the one who was always dictating how sex went with them. Right. Doesn't Reese imply that she can go anywhere she wants to go? On him or in general? Yeah, on him. I mean, he says that about the Volaris, too. Also true. But, like, maybe he's thinking of, like, the upper body region and not the lower body region. No, he's not. He's thinking lower body. I know, but it's... it's, He's letting her have control by not being explicit. Yes, but he's also giving her control because even in this imaginary situation where we all know what he's referencing about her licking right now, it's still giving her sexual control, which she's never had before. Right. Since Isaac. Not since Isaac when she was on top. Oh, she she was in control of that one. Yeah. But now now I've worked myself back over that maybe this is actually a true sexual empowering moment for Resand. I do think it's still testing boundaries, but I do think it's empowering in that they're not in the same room. There isn't that pressure. No, yeah, no, no. I mean, like, I'm already on board. It's testing boundaries. Like, I'm, you know, it's kind of like that's sexting 101, right? Yes, it (laughs) is. You just say something really light just to see if how they respond and then you go back and forth from there. Yes, like, I'm I'm already on board. But it's the fact that he's referencing her going down on him is the part that I found to be interesting that the first time that they're able to have an honest, somewhat honest conversation where they're not holding back or being afraid of embarrassment, Mm -hmm. that he leads the conversation to her going down on him. Mm-hmm. Which was the part that was like weird to me, but now I've worked myself over. I'm like, oh, actually, he's giving her control. Control. I think so. Maybe if it's a Tuesday, I'll feel differently. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd be happy to. So, as we've seen in this chapter, Feyre is encountering many turning points in her immortal journey. These turning points, especially those associated with her healing, are signaled by her ability to sleep through nightmares of the Adder. As I mentioned earlier, Feyre's system has been reset. She sleeps through the night and does not wake up once. This is a clear sign when compared to Chapter 1 Feyre of Mist and Fury that she is finally in the process of healing. Whether or not it's truly healing is up for interpretation. Not true healing. There we go. Just interpreted. Okay. (laughs) Chapter 30 opens with Feyre training with Cassian, and we have a lot of revelations in this chapter as Feyre continues to experience this turning point in her journey. To start us off, Feyre's tattoo on her arm matches the tattoos on Reese, Asriel, and Cassian. They are Illyrian markings for, quote, luck and glory on the battlefield. Like the night before with the music, Feyre realizes this may have been Reese's way of wishing her luck when facing Amarantha. 
How ironic the change of perception, where the tattoo was once a brand to be hidden, that now has become positive and hopeful with just a little bit of information. The tattoo is now an omen or a token of good luck and a signal of support that Farah needed in her darkest time. Farah says that she wouldn't mind a little bit of both of those things, luck and glory. Glory, Farah, means being renowned for honorable achievements and did not Farah say that she wants to be left alone? Does she not say that at every twist and turn? I think that might have been a word that she skipped when learning with Resan on Vocabulary Day. Yeah, I don't think she understands the definition of glory you know because glory? she definitely hates when people thank her for saving them. But, you know, definitely wants some luck and glory. No, you just want the luck. Yep. Farah sees a painting in her mind's eye for the first time in this book during her training scene. And it's natural that it's of Reese because who else would it be of? He is her muse. Who else is there is Azrael. Who's a better muse than Zaddy Azzy? You know what? He's my muse. He is everyone's muse. Cassian then goes on to ask probing questions about Tamlin while he trains with Feyre. During this sequence, Feyre begins to reflect on her relationship with Tamlin. Because she is more aware and her eyes are open to more than her very limited scope of thinking from earlier in Mist and Fury, Feyre is able to think more clearly about the nature of her relationship with Tamlin in the Spring Court. During this time, Feyre recognizes she loved Tamlin deeply and greatly, but the love had blinded her to his temper, even though at the same time, his fits of rage scared her. Let's take a moment for this. Feyre is finally admitting that she was scared of Tamlin. His actions frightened her, which says a lot because she was under the mountain and experienced extreme torture there. Tamlin was the first thing she feared after newly being made into a fae. That is such a fantastic point that I never gave consideration. Yeah, it's sad. That as an immortal being with extreme power, the first thing she's afraid of is her significant other. It's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. She's never been more in control. She just left an extremely terrifying situation. And yet she's terrified of her partner. She's never been more trapped. Yeah. That truly, in some ways, is worse than Under the Mountain. I mean, in Under the Mountain, death was always an option. Mm-hmm. Not that, like, she necessarily, I mean, sometimes she wanted to, but it was always a likelihood or a possibility. Mm-hmm. With Tamlin, that wasn't an option. It right. was just living immortally, immortality with him. It right. was going to be living forever and way more trapped than she was Under the Mountain. Absolutely. Sad. So sad. Through training or through being physical, because Feyre is a physical being, She works through her rage and grief at what happened to her and Tamlin. So we go back to a question that we've asked before. Did Tamlin never let her fight because subconsciously he didn't want her to work through these emotions? I'm still convinced that it was Ianthe who never let Farrah fight because I think Farrah and Tamlin would have worked it out had they trained together. But that would also require Tamlin being honest. And I think it would require Tamlin to be willing to work through his trauma. Oh, 100%. And that willingness does not exist. No, no. The only reason why it works before Farah here is because Cassian is honest with himself and his own emotions. He's even easy to give a real apology. And Cassian is the one who makes it a safe space. When the description of Cassian holding up his hands ready to take up her fire punches and just that image of it's okay, just... Yeah, my heart. It hurts my heart because I can just visually see that so clearly you know, he's just ready to take it. Like, yeah. all right, I yeah. can, I'm can. i here for you. Cassian and Feyre have a special bond in my brain. 
oh, yeah. Oh, they totally do. I mean, the same way that Fair and Asriel have a special bond, too. Yeah. This is the groundwork that yeah. SJM is capable of. Yeah, exactly. You know what also I thought of while we were prepping? Hmm. Cassian's able to make it a safe space for Farah the way Lucian was not able to. Uh, oh, you're right. I mean, who was the only other Fae who remotely empowered Farah? Lucian, because he handed her the daggers. Right. And a bejeweled belt. A bejeweled belt. But here you have Cassian, who is willing to go much farther, train her, teach her, make it a safe space. Take her fiery palms. More apologies to the Lucian lovers. Just another reason why he sucks. Sorry, Emily. Notice that during training, Feyre moves, quote, fluidly, smooth like silk, as if my immortal body at last aligned. By training, Feyre is tapping into who she truly is, and her body is no longer something she doesn't understand or cannot control. It is by acknowledging the things Feyre has refused to admit before, such as Tamlin didn't fight as hard for Feyre as she fought for him, and that Tamlin might be good but is still wrong. By acknowledging these things and these contradictions in her life, Feyre can finally admit her deepest feelings. That she killed the fairies under the mountain, and that it should have been her who died instead. Quote, I had done everything, everything for that love. I had ripped myself to shreds. I had killed innocence and debased myself. And he sat beside Amarantha on that throne. And he couldn't do anything, hadn't risked it, hadn't risked being caught until there was one night left, and all he wanted to do wasn't free me, but fuck me. There's a lot of other unsaid words here. Every single time that Tamlin didn't do something, Reese did. And everything that she listed there, that Tamlin sat beside the throne, that Tamlin sat there, didn't do anything, that on the last day he didn't try to free her, those are all things that Reese tried to do. And while we harp on Reese for many things, he was someone who was there for Farah. But like in earlier chapters, Farah still can't fully compare the two, not enough to openly think about one another when comparing them. In this realization and breakdown, Reese swoops in to comfort Feyre, bringing with him soothing darkness. And for a third time in this novel, he goes for her chin, but instead of grabbing it, he gently lifts it. Reese's chin lifts have really evolved here. We have the violent chin lift, the childlike chin lift, and now the comforting chin lift. And that is a chin lift that I can personally support. This is growth. Chin lift growth. <laughs> We see later in the chapter as well that when Reese summons darkness, Fair is comforted by it and that she can finally breathe easy. So in that scene, Reese twinkles stars all around them. That's a nice gift we never see again. True. <laughs> all we get are Reese is capable of darkness and handling shadows. Yeah, but not lights. When does that come back? I don't know. I feel like that could have been useful in places. Like if he's able to control stars, then he can make a big boom, big flash boom. I don't know, man. Sometimes things are just conveniently placed and then forgotten. I'm okay with convenience, but, you know, literary analysis. Yeah. The thing you use for convenience, give it purpose later. Yeah. Which SJM is really good at doing that. She is usually very, very good at doing that. And I respect that. I do respect it. I do. But back to the darkness, let's think back to the prologue or to the cup of tea in chapter five. Feyre is made up of contradictions and contrasts. For a heroine to be comforted by darkness kind of seems wrong. However, that's who Feyre is. Instead of getting rid of one or the other of her sides, Feyre is learning to accept both sides of herself, and she is beginning to find balance. I'm just thinking, like, it's a good point that in a literary sense, we don't think darkness is comforting. Mm -mm. 
in the real world, I think that's makes sense. Yeah. And if they, uh, turn off the lights. Right. You know, Resand calls this out earlier in the book. Like there's the darkness to scare. There's the yeah. darkness to soothe. There's the darkness for rest. Right. And so we're finding that the dark, which we typically associated with bad, has many faces. Yeah. And that it can be all or just one or some. Um, and I think that what we're seeing here is that for Feyre to be dark is not bad. For Feyre to be dark, there is still goodness in it. Chapter 31 is a lot of plot that's preparing us for the summer court excursion. But here are some notable things worth mentioning. There's a lot more groundwork happening here for Farah and Reese's relationship and the dynamic of the inner circle. Amorin and Cassian are going back and forth, and even Farah and Az get time to bond while observing Reese. And that's groundwork times two, because we also get to know Az more, and we get to see Farah being jealous. But do you know who doesn't have any groundwork done here? More. Which, really, if you want us to like her, give us something. We've had these chapters between the human realm and the summer court. They're down chapters. That's why this episode's shorter. That's a, it's a little blip that we're getting. And normally, what's used there is character development. Right. And we get that for everyone else, except for more. Yep, pretty much. There's special bonding for Farah for all of the characters, except for more. More deserves better. I think, as we know, Moore is harboring a secret, and I think SJM is doing too good of a job harboring her secret as a writer. As a writer, yes, but as a writer, it also feels like she knew she needed another female character, because if Moore's not there, then it's just Amarin and Farah. Right. And it feels like she needed stuck, to balance it out. Yeah, she stuck another female character in there just in order to try to make it seem somewhat balanced. And honestly, her only use is to be a point of contention between her and Asriel. And then the Veritas. Yeah, but it's exactly. But it's just very frustrating where why are we using women as plot points for men? Yeah. Ooh. That's all more is. It's true, and it hurts my heart. She's a plot point for... Azrael. And Cassian. Yeah. And Eris. Yep. And everyone else. For men specifically. She's not even a plot point for Farrah. Like, even for Reese. Yeah, even for Reese. That sucks. She's only a character there to develop other male characters. Mm, that makes me so mad. It's, a, it's an unfortunate thing that happens for a lot of female characters. A lot of times it's when a female character dies and... A male character then becomes a better person because he had to learn through her death. But why? Why'd she have to die? Exactly. Which I'm not surprised if Moore ends up dying. Oh, don't say that. Because she's literally only been a device for the male development. It makes me really, really upset. Yeah. I mean, in Into Silver Flames, she's still not even a person. She's even less useful in Silver Flames. Oh, completely. Like, she might as well... She was Alice in Silver Flames, is what she was. Do you know her only plot point there was to assist Cassian? Exactly. Again, her only development as a character is to help the male characters in their story. Fuck. Fuck. Once the announcement has been made that Feyre, Amarin, and Reese will go to the summer court, Feyre continues to keep one step away from Reese. At the end of the chapter, Farah tracks down Reese to ask him about their trip to the summer court. And in doing so, Farah keeps a healthy distance away after she, quote, took in the half grin, the chest I might have suggested I'd lick. Now, this could be signaling one of two things. A, Farah isn't being honest about her feelings. We've talked a lot about things being unsaid. Or B, Farah's underlying guilt about Tamlin and betraying him is starting to surface. 
also unspoken. In the same scene, Farah is starting to allow herself to flirt with Reese since it's easy and fun. But when Farah tries to play it cool and flirt back rather than bite back at Reese, Reese and then reacts, quote, So I closed the distance between us, smoothly stepped past him and said, You haven't been able to keep away from me since Calamai, it seems. Something rippled in his eyes that I couldn't place, but he flicked my nose hard enough that I hissed and batted his hand away. Okay, so what this is showing me is that Reese can't let Farah be a sexual being yet. And while he does enjoy flirting with her, he is not mentally ready for her to reciprocate. He had to demean her here like a child in order to take back the situation and be in charge. Flirting and sexual expression can only be done on his terms. I see what you're saying. I agree. I also see a slightly different side of it because that's the moment Reese met Farah and realized she was the person he was waiting for and looking for. And so on some level, this requires a level of honesty from him that he's not ready to be. He's not ready to be honest and vulnerable, as we've seen in the past couple chapters. Oh, like it's a double whammy where she's being flirty and calling out a weakness of his. Exactly. And to be honest about that moment is to be honest about the mating bond. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't trust her enough yet to not leave him if he tells her. I, I like that. It still drives me crazy that he has to revert to treating her like a child. Oh, yeah. 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 I like, agree with you entirely. I like where you took that. It's, it's it's a deflection. But why did it have to be that way? Like a child. Exactly. Every single time he always treats her like a child. It's like fighting on the playground. Let me just flick you. Go away. Oh, I don't even associate that. I have, I find it to like be... Like a parent to a child? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't. When I too. say childlike, I'm not thinking that he's also a child. I think that it's like a, an adult to a kid trying to bat them away. Right. He's being patronizing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I see that too. Before we wrap up, there is one last Tamlin and Reese parallel at the end of this chapter that I cannot resist pointing out. When Feyre accuses Reese of having nothing better to do than to pass notes back and forth with her late at night, Reese exclaims, quote, I do have more important things to do, but I find myself unable to resist the temptation. Again, this reminds me very keenly of when Tamlin told Feyre her human joy fascinates him and he can't look away, even though he knows he should. It's just goes back to this idea of Feyre being a seductress and breaking mm-hmm. down their resolve and their willpower. But I need to be a strong high lord. It's also very much like it's hard for me to resist temptation. As if it's her fault. Uh, uh, right? As if she started the texting or the, like, you know, the message writing. Right, right. This is all him. Yeah. All him. He chose to be tempted. He chose to view her as a temptation. Well, that was not her choice. There's something about saying that they're a tem- temptation puts the ownership onto them because right. now Reese is the poor victim who's exactly. being tempted. Oh, poor him. Exactly. It's the equivalent of, for me, I get annoyed, thing about in high school, I wasn't allowed to wear spaghetti straps because, you know, it might tempt the boys around me. Well, exactly. It's it's the same thing as, like, girls can't wear short skirts because, mm-hmm. you know, how can men resist the temptation? Yeah. It's now her fault that he can't resist and has to not pay attention to the rest of his work and has to message her because he messaged her first. Exactly. <sighs> so tired of... Yeah, so tired of this bullshit. <laughs> I'm just... Uh, but you know what? I want to be someone's temptation. I get it. I get it. I, I'm not pretending like I'm above this. I just... I am so below it. So below. So very. Are we ready for some breadcrumbs? Oh, we got some breadcrumbs for you today. However, before we enter breadcrumbs, there are some intense spoilers happening for Sarah J. Mass Universe, Hosab, Silver Flames. So just enter this with caution. 
In chapter 29, Feyre thinks when Rhysand picks her up and flies her home, quote, I could learn to love it, I realized. The flying. You know what she could also learn to love? How to make love while flying. It still doesn't make sense how it happens. You and I were trying to flap our arms. <laughs> and, and gyrate. And gyrate. <laughs> Not to each other, just like in general standing, like, what is happening? How do you... How do you do this? Uh, I definitely have seen a TikTok where someone has a whiteboard and draws it out and demonstrates it. I need better visuals. (laughs) I need someone to draw this. Also in chapter 29, quote, his eyes blazed as if he could peer all the way back in time to see it. With those remarkable gifts of his, I wouldn't be surprised. How have I missed this every single time? As we know, every time Sarah J. Mass writes, as if they could, it means they have. And if you haven't listened to our episode with a happy hermit, Lily, episode 14, season one, we talk about Hosab and how they're linked and the fact that time travel is very likely to happen in future books. And the fact that they're referencing time travel here. Yep. yep. It's going to be a reskift. 100%. Anytime there's a mention of traveling through time and space, it -hmm. really happens. Yep. So why not here as well? Big freaking breadcrumb. In Chapter 30, Reese says to Feyre, quote, I have two kinds of nightmares. The ones where I'm again Amarantha's whore or my friends are. And the ones where I hear your neck snap and see the light leave your eyes. Because that's when Reese realized Feyre was his mate and that he lost her. Mm Mm-hmm. In Chapter 31... While Fair is watching more and Cassian, she says, I wish Nesta was there, if only to see them go head to head. Nesta will, in fact, be in that exact location, training with Cassian, and, Mar- and more will stop by. You are so right. Mm-hmm. I missed it. Also in 31, Moore says to Cassian, quote, Last I was aware, I didn't take orders from you, Cassian, or report to you. So where I was or who I was with is none of your damn concern. Now, we don't get a lot of more development, but Moore is so touchy because she's harboring a secret. And that is she's got some lady friends. I hope this one little grain of rice of information keeps you full because that's all you're going to get from her. Yeah, it's true. Additionally, in chapter 31, quote, you haven't been able to keep away from me since Kalamai. It seems something rippled in his eyes that I couldn't place. That is because they're mates, and this was a turning point in Reese's life. Let's get back to the question we asked at the top of the episode. Can Farah truly begin the healing process when she leaves so much unsaid? I think Farah is finally at a point where she's ready to heal. She wants to heal. Mm-hmm. She's done wallowing. Is she capable of healing? I think she's making those steps, but as we kind of discussed earlier in the episode, She's compartmentalizing and she's not taking a look at things holistically. She's trying to just work in slips and slivers. And I think as we're going to see in the summer court chapters, it doesn't work. No, she's definitely in the anger phase of the breakup Mm -hmm. and which is great. She needed to be angry. She needed to learn how to get angry there. But, you know, breakups are so much more complicated than I get to be angry at them. It involves having, like you said, looking at it holistically and eventually. I still don't think she really does that because it would require a lot. I think she does in Wing and Ruin, actually. I take it back. I think she comes to a real piece with the breakup in Wing and Ruin, and I have zero memory of it. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But it requires a lot more to be said about Tamlin. 
Yeah, and she's not ready to give him that much space in her mind. Correct, correct. Because what we're going to see in these next few episodes is that Tamlin is the intrusive thought she doesn't want to have. She's not ready to process those things. And like I said earlier, that you can't process Tamlin without letting Resand in. Exactly. And let's also remember, she's 20 years old. I Right. Oh, my God. Amy, you remember my breakup at 20? Yeah. Just turned 21. Did I handle it with this kind of grace? And it's okay. No. Thank you. That's the honest answer. I love you, but no. It was a lot of alcohol. Yes. Dyed my hair red. Yes. Another thing. I can't remember a lot of other things, but <laughs> it was, yeah, she's 20 years old. We got to come back down to that. She was engaged. She was a child. She was a child bride. Engaged. Just, I mean, not including all the other trauma. Right, right. So much trauma. It's crazy. Yeah. Ultimately, we just got to give Farah a big old thing of slack. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Book Talk for Book Talk. We encourage you to rate and subscribe to our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. Next week, we'll be exploring chapters 32 through 37 of A Court in Mist and Fury. We would love to hear your thoughts based on today's conversation. You can submit your comments to our form at booktalkforbooktalk.com for a chance to have your feedback discussed during a weekly mini-episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, visit our website, booktalkforbooktalk.com, to view our latest merch and to learn about supporting the show through Patreon, Ko-Fi, or Venmo. Or find us on TikTok and Instagram at the handle booktalkforbooktalk. Bye. Bye.